Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast series explores the theme of second chance. We raise questions about who deserves a second chance, who decides who gets a second chance, and what a second chance actually means. We speak to people from all walks of life about their experiences, including those who have been given a second chance, and some who you might believe are beyond deserving a second chance. Before I introduce my guest today, I wanted to ask you to support the Raphael Rowe Foundation. The mission of the foundation is to end dehumanisation of people in prison and build safer societies. We work with those who administer prison systems throughout the world and inspire them to abolish dehumanising, degrading and dangerous practices, putting more emphasis on the health, education and rehabilitation of those in their care. In many prisons across the world, basic human rights are not being met and systems are collapsing, causing overcrowding, rising violence, suicides and drug issues, making it difficult to rehabilitate inmates and reintegration back into society. I know this because if any of you have watched my Netflix series, Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, you would have seen what I'm talking about. If you want to help, please visit the website at www.rafaelrofoundation.org and register your support for the work we're doing. And if you can afford to make a donation to help our mission, please click on the donate link on the website, which will take you to our GoFundMe campaign. Thank you. From sunny Florida, the Let's Get Real podcast host, Joseph Keiji, joins as our next guest this week. Joseph was a drug addict who served time in prison. Now he's an entrepreneur and family man to five kids. He talks to us about how he found hope in a higher power, how learning to be yourself in a changing world and finding his religion helped him change his narrative. 
he encourages the young people of this generation in a TikTok culture who rely on outside validation and the world to tell them who to be, to be who they truly are inside out. Joseph learned that through the sheer power of his own mind, with the guidance of books and his belief, he too could be the man he chooses to be today. Joseph, thanks for joining me today. I'd like to kick off the podcast by saying that I've read that you are a former drug addict. I've read that you spent some time being incarcerated, that you spent time in prison. I've read that you know you struggled with with your drug addiction for a number of years. I've read that you overcame your your drug addiction, your time in prison to become a successful entrepreneur and family man. But these are the things that I've read or I've heard. So I'd like to start this podcast interview by asking you who you are as opposed to what I've read for you to tell me the man that you are now and the man that you were so that we hear it from you as opposed to what people have said about you. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, part of when you, when I think about the question you asked, the first thought that comes to my mind is I'm a husband and father first today. You know, I'm, I'm blessed to have, I have five total kids. So my wife and I got married almost six years ago. Um, she had three kids from a previous marriage. So I right off the bat just came in and said, Hey, three kids, let's go. Um, uh, it just, it worked out perfectly. Uh, she was sent by God to me a hundred percent. Um, and we have two children of our own, which is three and two. As you heard some of them trying to knock on the doors, they heard daddy's voice. <laughs> so um, that's one of the most important things to me. And, and now, you know, thinking about all the things you were talking about of my past, um, I used to think that's who I was. And today I just know that's part of my story. And it allows me to give hope to people that were in that place. Um, and, and I know that without that part of my story, being a drug addict, going to prison, being a thief, being somebody who brought no value to anybody in their life, today I get to do the opposite. Today, I know, you know, because I know what it's like to not bring value to anybody around you. I know what it's like to be very selfish and self-centered and only think about Joseph. I know what that feeling is like. That is why my biggest mission today is to bring value, to give hope, because I've been on the opposite end. You know, so, so today I use my story and I have a saying that if I hide my story, I hide God's glory. I'm able to use my story instead of allowing my story to cripple me. That's what I used to do all the time, Raphael. My, my story crippled who I was. My past crippled me. It led me to deep depression. It's why the only end result was jail, prison, or death. Um, and today I just know that, you know what, that story is part of who I am. I get to recreate it, and it's now my journey. It's, it's such an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, thanks for, for sort of explaining why and how. But as I was listening to you talk about, you know, the value you bring to people's lives today and how you added no value to people's lives when you were uh, dependent on drugs, I immediately thought about the guys that were selling you the drugs, the guys and the girls that were selling you the drugs, where you were bringing them some monetary value. And they were probably individuals themselves who found themselves in trickier situations, you know, forced to sell drugs, if not to make money, but because of the environment they they grew up with. So there's always a value to somebody, even when you think you're not bringing value and you're destroying your own life and other people's lives. There are other people who get value out of that. How did you, Joseph, find yourself 
dependent on, on drugs and at what point in your life were drugs something that, that consumed you as, as an individual? I grew up actually in Detroit, Michigan, which is, which is the north of the United States. And, and I moved here to the south when I was 14 years old. You know, my family's, I'm a second generation Iraqi Christian. So my parents were born in Iraq, Middle Eastern culture. The men in our culture were, were not used to talk about our issues. You know, if you're going through something, you just figure it out. And there is no communication about what you're struggling with. So all the way up to the age of 14, you know, I had little struggles, but I had so many people around me that I had a lot of distractions that distracted me from, you know, maybe my inner voices or my inner demons, whatever you want to call them. But when I moved here to Florida, one of the biggest things that happened was it was a culture shock. I was not happy. Um, I was, I started, I found myself becoming very depressed. And what happens to a 14-year-old kid who doesn't know how to deal with sadness? He doesn't know how to deal with anger. You know, I, I really didn't even know how to cope with these emotions. Um, I didn't think I should talk to anybody about it because that was the opposite of what I was taught, you know, from my, my parents. And, and this is not to blame them. It's just how they were raised. You know, I, I realized today that my parents raised me the way they were. And, and that's just how they, they understood it. If they knew the outcome, they probably wouldn't have, they would have been more vocal with me. But and then I just, I, I tried to fit in into a lot of groups here in Florida. Um, you know, I was an athlete, so, you know, I'd hang out with the athletes, but, you know, I soon found myself, you know, I believe we're the worst judge of characters to ourselves. So if, if I'm hanging out with a group of people and I find that I'm a little bit different, I, I, what I did was I ran away. Uh, I ran away from that group and I found another group where I felt like I wouldn't be different. But the truth is we're all different. And, and every group I involved myself with, there was something that was different about me. And I chose to look at those things, whether it was, oh, this guy was a better athlete or, oh, man, they play music and I don't or they fish and hunt and I don't. And then I felt disconnected again. And I slowly started, uh, you know, smoking weed, drinking, you know, and, and it was on occasions. But what I found when I was on drugs was it relieved me from myself. It relieved me from feeling any of these emotions. This is the first solution I found to dealing with my problems. Not a great solution. <laughs> But it was the first solution I truly found that I said, you know what, when I'm sad, I don't feel sadness. I don't feel anger. I almost don't even feel like who, who I am. And that was the first time I realized I want to run from me. I've been running from myself for a very long time. And drugs and alcohol were a mechanism that I used to run from myself. And then I found opiates uh, around the age of 16. And when I found opiates, that was a very strong, you know, here in Florida, there was a big pain epidemic where they were just giving out pain medication like it was candy. It was very easy to, it was very easy to obtain. So I became highly addicted to those. Um, and, and anytime I woke up and I didn't have them, it's, it's like my cup of coffee. You know, I have my cup of coffee here with me right now because when I wake up, it's what I have here. It's, it's habitual. And drugs did that to me. It was when I woke up and I didn't have them, the first thought was I need to go get them because I was left with me. You know, when I woke up without the drug, I was left with me. And the drugs relieved me from me. And, and that led on to, and I can go into all the craziness, but that just led on to almost 12 straight years in and out of prison, stealing from people to get drugs, stealing from family members, um, you know, just anybody and anyone that came into my way, I would wreck to get all my, all my charges were theft. You know, I, I go into the prisons today because I, I talk to a lot of people in there who I believe are not criminals. I believe a lot of them are addicts. Before you talk about the, the time that you went in prison, 
at this point, you talked about the the sort of lack of emotion or or, or awareness from from parental guidance. What about school? What what was the influence of schooling um, and the community on you? Because it sounds like at the age of 14, 15, 16, you were already on this trajectory of self-destruction. What role did the community and the school play in in, in your education, in your, your, your sort of not just education as in academic education, but in your understanding of the dangers of drugs, of consuming drugs and getting caught up in that world of criminality? Yeah, you know, what's wild about how my how I am as an individual is if I want something, I will ignore all the other things that people are telling me, for example. Just like, you know, if, if I know eating a donut in the morning is bad for my health, I'll convince myself that it's just one donut. I don't want to hear about all the bad effects of it. So when I was when I was in the education of on drugs, I knew, okay, drugs are bad, you know, drugs could lead you to prison. And, and stay away from drugs. You know, it, it was kind of the, the basic that I knew. But the truth is this, I mean, at least for myself, if you were to tell me that when I first started, I would end up like I did, I would have told you you were crazy. I said, no, no, I'm not going to be like that. I'm just kind of doing these a little bit. You know, I tried to convince myself that all the things that people were telling me, it's not going to happen to me. You know, when I thought of drug addiction, I thought of the guy who was just on the corner of the road, shooting a needle in his arm, you know, just homeless guy. I, I didn't think it would happen to me. I just thought I'm, I'm different than everybody. And of course, it's I didn't want it to happen to me because I wanted to continue to do them. That's the truth. So it's like the guy who just goes to the gym every day, but doesn't pick up a weight. He's there because it feels better. So listening to the education is all great. But if I don't believe in anything that they're telling me, it's my choice to believe, oh my gosh, you know, my parents have taught me when I was younger, stay away from drugs, don't do them. But the truth is, is that's all I knew. And, and I, I don't think an addict, I should only speak for myself, but I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to be a drug addict. It was slowly but surely where I woke up one day and a friend said, let's smoke some weed. And I said, well, it's not heroin. That's okay. You know, I wanted to fit in so bad that I ignored, you know, all the fears and the dangers of what could possibly happen, especially because I was dealing with this inner turmoil of myself. You know, I was I was still dealing with this inner inner depression, inner anger, inner sadness that I wanted to fit in because that also made me feel accepted. It made me feel loved. It made me feel, you know, a, a, a more positive emotion than the feelings that I had now. So the education was great. But the truth was, I, you know, as much as people were telling me, you know, when it came to my school, I was very good at hiding what I was doing for a, long, for a short period of time. So if you if you knew Joseph at the age of 16 you didn't really think he was involved in drugs. I was showing up to church with my family. I was still showing up to school. You know, it wasn't until, you know, I found out as an athlete that I couldn't play basketball on the basketball team anymore because of some zoning for my school. Then I completely just said, there's no point of me going to school anymore. Um, and then I just dropped out of school. You know, I, it became almost like I, I felt like I was living in a different reality. So even though people were trying to educate me, it, that was their world. That's not mine. You know, when you told me drugs are bad, I said, that sounds good, but you don't know what I'm going through. I always felt like nobody understood me. So the education system, I think, tried their best to do it. But at the end of the day, it starts with me. You know, I, I was not I was not very honest with people. I was not very honest with my emotions. I was just running away from anybody and anyone who was trying to take me away from those drugs because that was the only solution I had. 
And, and why was that? Because it doesn't sound like you, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't sound like you were brought up in a disruptive household. You were going to church with your family, your family, like you said, there was a bit of a culture going on in terms of people not expressing themselves. But what was it that you had this inner turmoil? What was this inner turmoil, this, this, a lack of confidence within yourself that you needed to find a way to fit in with people. I mean, you, you know, it sounds like you were an athlete, you were intelligent, you had a good family around you, yet you wanted to fit in. Fit in with what? So what happened, like I said, when I had moved from Michigan to Florida, that was a big, it was a big culture shock for me. That was the change. That was where I wasn't fitting in. Because so in Michigan, I grew up around a lot of people. And, and I was a popular kid because I played sports. So, I mean, I always had people around me. There was not a day when I came home from school that a friend wasn't over or a cousin wasn't over. I wasn't, I was never alone. I was always around people. And then I moved here to Florida and all of a sudden I'm alone. I don't have, I moved here in the summer as well. So it's not like, you know, when I remember thinking about it, I would just walk around the neighborhood and look at kids and think like, where am I? You know, it was so different. So fitting in and the culture is different, you know, like here, the North and the South is very different. You know, in the South, people are hunting, they're fishing. You're getting into high school, people have their cliques already. And I'm the new kid showing up, you know, and I'm almost like, and, and when I was who I was in Michigan, it didn't fit in very well. I, I, I didn't feel like I was accepted as well as I was there. So now I felt like I had to not be that person. Because when I was in Michigan, I was the athlete. I would go hang out with people. I was funny. I felt like I was myself. And when I came here, there was a part of me, and this could have been just fears and what I chose to see, but what I felt at that age was, if I'm me, I'm not accepted here. You know, so now you're dealing with a 14, 15-year-old kid who thinks he can't be him. Well, who does he be? And, and this is where I started to figure out, I don't know who I am. And this was the journey from 14 to 26 of Joseph, never in understanding who he was, trying to be anybody else other than who I believe I am. You know, that's why today I'm so big on let's get real. You know, you don't need to be anybody else. And I talk about that stuff because it led me to this deep depression of trying to be like everybody else. And I realized if I just would have been me, I didn't need to have a bunch of friends. You know, I didn't need to be the popular kid in school. I really wish I just could have talked to that Joseph and tell him, hey, it's okay to be you. You know, it's okay to be who you are. And, and you don't need to be loved by everybody. I was so used to being loved by the whole high school, you know, and being loved by every party person, that was my identity. I found my identity in that. And, and it's interesting because I was going to ask the question that you've just answered, which is it's okay to be yourself. It's okay to be the 14, 15-year-old Joseph that, that you were destined to be and not to pretend or, or try to fit in. But how did you, how do you get a 14-year-old Joseph, Michael, Jay, Peter, how do you get Sarah, Jane, you know, Kim, how do you get that 14-year-old to realize today, Joseph, that they can be themselves and they don't have to fit in? What, what are you doing? What are you, you trying to tell these young teenagers not to go down the same path that you went down? That's a great question. I have two of my own right now, a 19-year-old, just turned 19, and a 17-year-old. And I'm also talking to young people. And the thing I'm always constantly telling them is, if you don't figure out who you are and who you want to become, you will allow the world to change who you are. And then one day you will wake up and realize, I don't know who I am. And regret is poison. Regret is the one thing that you can never turn back from. 
And the problem is, is if you continue to look at the world and you continue to look at your high school and try to be everybody else, you're not going to be different. I believe the world needs somebody different. I'm also a spiritual person. And I'm always telling my children that God created you specifically with specific gifts. So if you're trying to be Michael, you know, my son's name is Ryan. I tell him, if you're trying to be Michael, you're ignoring the gifts God's given you. And, and I read a book that I share with my children all the time. And we actually done this exercise. And it's, it's a book by Stephen Covey called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I think if young children can start looking at this, it's very important. And in the book, he talks about you walking into a funeral. You know, he asks you to close your eyes and envision yourself going into a funeral. And there's your family members there. There's friends there. There's a lot of people that you know in this funeral. And you walk up to the casket. This is you inside of the casket. And, and people are going to speak at your funeral. What do you want them to say about you? And you start writing them down. And you really think about this. And I think why this is so important is because today it's so easy to get distracted in what's important to us. Money, fame, popularity. But most of the time, like even my kids, they want to go viral on TikTok. You know, they want to get rich and they want to be a real estate, you know, real estate guru. But when you look at what they wrote down on their, you know, what people say about their funeral, none of it has to do with money. It's he brought value to my life. He was a great son. He was a great fan. I said, if you focus on these things, the rest will come. The problem is the world will try to defer you from these things. There will be distractions. There will be people. And you always have to look back at these things and your values and understand that. Will you sacrifice your values for popularity? Will you sacrifice your values for fame? Will you sacrifice your values for morals and, and money? And the problem is if you sacrifice your values for money, you will lose who you are. And they know my story. They know what I've been through. So I'm a living example to them of what it's like when you sacrifice your values for other things. You become depressed. You look in the mirror. You don't know who you are. And I always tell my children, I want you to always know who you are. When somebody asks you who you are, who am I? I want you to be able to understand that. And I think it's very important to talk to kids today, especially like high school kids, because pop, you know, they're trying to figure out who they are. And, th and their truth is, I think they allow their outside world to tell them who they are instead of really sitting back and thinking, who do you want to be? You know, who do you want to be and becoming that person? And that, that journey never stops. For me, I'm, I'm always trying to become that person. And I think in high school, I even tell them as you're writing these things down, maybe in six months you look at it and you might write something different and you start focusing on that area. So that's what I'm currently telling the kids now. You mentioned that, that you were able to hide the fact that you were dabbling in drugs and you were able to hide the fact that you were going down the wrong path. At what point could you no longer hide it? Was it when you first had your brush with the law where you got arrested and what was that for? Or was it before that? Had you got into some other kind of trouble or was it just the, the consumption of drugs that people started to realise that you were not the Joseph that they knew before? At what point? Joseph, in your life, did your addiction and criminality start to become a problem for other people? Yeah, so people that were close to me, like family members, mom, dad, brother, sister, what was tough for them is they've never dealt with addiction before. So when they kind of seen me, you know, maybe got, got fired from a job for stealing, I would talk my way out of it. But I think when it got to this place where I started stealing from my family members, you know, I started stealing from my mom, my dad, my brother, you know, and, and my sister. And, and I think at that point, you know, it was very hard for them. And I've spoken to them even now that they knew something was going on, but it was hard for them to accept that it was drugs because 
they didn't raise me that way. Drugs were never a problem in our family. Like, you know, my, my family, my dad doesn't smoke. You know, my dad will have a drink, a glass of wine. My brother doesn't smoke. My sister doesn't smoke or drink like neither of them do. So to think of their son that they raised in this culture and in this thing, it would almost to them, if they were to accept the fact that it was drugs, I believe it would mean that they failed as a parent. So they were de really denying for a very long time. My mother says this, that I, I knew in my heart something was going on, but I denied it. You know, I allowed you to tell me that it was okay because I would rather believe that than believe you were on drugs. So, you know, when it, when it started stealing from family, my father is very, you know, he's a very brazen, old school, Middle Eastern man. And, and he told me, he said, as soon as you stole from family, I knew. I said, he's either on drugs or he's gambling. Because in our culture, when somebody's stealing, they're either on drugs or they're gambling. You know, that, that was my dad's belief. And he said, I didn't think you were gambling, but I could just tell by the way you were living, it had to be drugs. You know, and, and uh, so that was, the I think, when they realized now outside people of family members, as I told you before, I cared about what other people thought of me. So if you were my friend and you end, I ended up stealing from you and I lost you, I would just find another friend. As long as the people in my outside circumstances thought I was okay, it almost validated that ah, I'm not that bad, that look, they think I'm good. And I would hop from friend to friend to friend. And if you didn't, and then I would go to college and try to get like college friends to look good. Like, oh, I got college friends. You see, I'm doing good. But eventually it was always, there was never a friend that I've met in my life. And this is a true story that I didn't, I didn't hurt, whether it was stealing from them or using them or abusing them. So the friends always figured it out because it was, it was eventually within a month or two months that they would realize, oh, I'm not who I said I was. Family members, once I started stealing from family, because I grew up around, even today, my family is very, very close. They're the most important thing to us. My mom and dad are here almost every weekend. My brother and I, we work together in my business. So my family culture is so big. When they saw me stealing from family, that's when they knew something's going on. At what age did you get in trouble with the law? Um, and what was the consequence of that? And what was it that you did? So the crime that I committed, I should say the crime that I was actually arrested for, for the first time was I was 18 years old. And I would post ads on, you know, they have a thing called Craigslist here. It's similar to like Facebook marketplace where you're selling items. And I would, I would list that I would sell a large item like an Apple MacBook and somebody would come to meet me and I would find manipulative ways to say, Hey, my brother is actually the one selling the laptop and he's afraid. He doesn't want to come out. He want he told me, if, you know, I got to bring the money inside. I, I would always find manipulative ways. I was a very, you know, today I'm a good salesman. Back then I used my sales for manipulation. Today it's to actually provide value and help people with what I'm offering. Um, so that's, that's what I ended up getting arrested for was, you know, it was, it was strong. They called it strong armed robberies, um, theft. And then I would take items and take them to pawn shops. So at the age of 18, you know, I got arrested with my first felonies. And what I got that time, they gave me two years in a Florida state prison. So I ended up getting out almost before my 21st birthday. That was the first crime that, that was committed. What was it like in, in that prison for you as, as a young man? I mean, you'd already been going down this path of destruction, but ending up in prison, you're now mixing and influencing, being influenced by, by a completely different set of people, though your world probably evolved around other criminalities. It doesn't sound like you were going out with a team of of, of addicts or, or criminals that you were kind of a, a lone soldier in this regard. But what was going to prison like and, and what 
effect, impact did it have on young Joseph? You know, what's amazing is I, I, you know, and I keep going back to let's get real. And it's only because of why I realized how much this is my mission is it's so amazing how easy it is to ignore your reality. Like even in our life today, you ignore your reality. You don't realize the reality of your situation until you actually sit back and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the reality of where I am. And I was sitting in jail for the first time and in Duval County here in the jail, they have these floors, these levels. So the fifth floor is like where people who are getting life sentences, people who are double life sentences getting execution. I mean, this is the worst floor. This is where they put me. And and I'm sitting in a cell with somebody. And I remember this was right before Halloween. And I'm sitting there in my own belief, thinking I'm going to be home in October. I'm, I'm Hopefully I'll be home for Halloween and hopefully I'll be home for Christmas at least. And this guy looked at me, he goes, are you, are you ignoring really what's going on in your life? You have three felonies on your record and you're here on the fifth floor. You're not going home, buddy. You're going to prison. And I remember when he said that to me, I, it was the first time I said, oh, wow. I actually like literally stopped getting out of my world and looked at the reality of the situation. And that's the first thing that I just thought about of, of that situation, what it did for me. And then when I looked at reality, I'm looking at all these people that I'm around. And, and this is where I started to wonder, am I like them? Am I, is this who I am? You know, again, I'm on this journey of finding out who I am. All of a sudden, drugs are who I am. Now I'm in jail, going to prison, and I'm wondering, is this who I am? Am I just a guy who comes in and out of jail? Am I a criminal? You know, am I, you know I'm looking at these people, and I'm just like, maybe I'm one of them. Maybe this is who my path is. But what's interesting is I, I met a man who was in there for a DUI. The prison that I went to was not like what you see on movies, very minimum security. We would go out in the community and, and cut the grass on the highways, you know, and, and, and so, you know, it's not like, you know, when I ended up going into prison, I'm not getting stabbed. There's, it's not as dramatic as people had thought. The worst part about it is you're in a, you're pretty much in a fenced in community that you can't get out. And they tell you when you can eat, when you can sleep, you know, it's like military, but you can't see your family. But the people that were in there is what really affected me because I'm looking at them thinking maybe this is who I am. But I met this man, his name was Doug, and, and he passed away a couple of years ago. And, and it was something that I think he looked at me and realized that I'm a little bit different than all these other people. He could tell that the way I carried myself was different. And I could tell the way he carried himself was different too. He was about 60 years old and he didn't carry himself like everybody else. He was in there for a DUI, very wealthy man. He just was in there for, again, a DUI. And I remember him always talking to me and he would call me son. He said, listen, son, this is not who you are. And I don't know. I, I look back and I, I'm a spiritual person. I believe God put that man in my life because I remember when he told me that it was the first time that somebody had tried to tell me who I am. And he goes, look, you're a good kid. I could tell. And, and he was speaking into who I was. And I'm like, I don't know, man. How can you call me a good person? Dude, do you know how much I've done? And he started to teach me about my higher power. You know, and I'm a Christian, so I believe in Jesus. And he just started to teach me about this stuff. And for the first time in my life, I found a little bit of hope. You know, I was like, wow, you know, like I almost related to a lot of the people that were in the Bible. And, and it just gave me hope for the first time in my life. And then it also gave me a person who was telling me that you're a good person. You know, I've never had anybody tell me you're a good person. You're a good kid. It's why today, you know, what's amazing is I tell fathers that I know today, hey, you're a good father, man. Because I realized that I was just a little boy looking for somebody to tell me I was good. You know, I was a little kid looking to tell somebody to tell me I'm proud of you. Now, of course, what is there to be proud of of Joseph? 
you know, nobody was telling me they were proud of me. So I, I accepted the identity of the bad kid. So that was the experience that it kind of did for me. I, I became really close to this man because he validated the good things about me. You know, he said, I don't care what you've done. Like, I could just tell, like, when you go out there and you play basketball, you pick up the ball and you take, you're the only one who, like, cleans up the rec yard. You know, and, and when you're walking, you're saying, excuse me, like, I can tell you're a good kid. And I've never had anybody tell me you're a good kid. So for the first time in my life, I believed it. That what happened when I got out is I started to fall back into maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not. You know, I, I did keep in contact with him. He, I got out before he got out. So I didn't put myself around people who were telling me you're good. And I didn't believe I was. So I started going back to accepting that old me again. And it happened again after two years. I end up in prison again at the age of 23. And this time I served three years. And was that driven by your drug addiction? Was it when you got out of prison, despite being told that you were not the bad person, when you got out, you were again consumed by your your need for, for drugs? And, and just you, you said that you are a Christian and have always believed in Christianity. Was that during your time in prison? I mean, how does that align with crime, drugs, deceit, and all the things that you were doing how could you be a Christian who believed in what Christianity, I, I don't understand it. I call myself an ignorantist because I don't understand how religion works. But I'm always baffled when people say they're religious and they believe in God and they believe in Jesus and they try and follow the path, yet they're still doing all these bad things or what is considered in society to be bad. So where were you with your religion at this point, aligning it with criminality and drug use? Yeah. So I'd like to touch on that as well. But what the first part that I want to say is I grew up around religion. My dad was Catholic. It was religion. Not that saying Catholic is, is anything. I, I'm just sharing my experience with that. Right. I grew up around religion. Religion was if you're going to believe in Jesus and this is what you're going to do, you have to do good. Right. You have to do good. You can't be doing bad because you're you're a Christian. Right. And when you do bad, this is what you do. And that's how I grew up. I didn't understand relationships. That's what I didn't understand. I didn't understand a relationship with a higher power. What does that mean? You know, I, didn't, I never understood that. The difference of when I went in this time is I started to learn about relationships. I started to learn, you know, it, what's funny about that is I kind of thought a lot about how you thought is I can't really, how can I go to Jesus with like all this stuff? You know, I'm, I'm even today, I'm still a messed up human being. You know, I'm still jacked up. I'm not perfect. I still slip a curse word here. I still, I still do bad things that not, not criminal things, but sometimes I'll, I'll get angry at my wife, right? Obviously, I'm not putting my hands on her, but I would. And if you look at people would look at Christianity and say, Oh, you're not supposed to be angry. You know, you're not supposed to be yelling at your wife. What kind of Christian are you? And, and for me and my experience with my belief and my spirituality is that's why I'm a Christian. You know, that's really why is I'm a messed up human being looking for somebody else to give me the power to recognize where I can get better. I'm never going to be that person. You know, I used to look at Christianity and think these are perfect, holy people. If I walk into that church, I'm going to get probably struck down by lightning because of who I am. And when I started to understand for my spirituality, it's just a relationship. My prayer every day is God relieve me of the bondage of myself because I have struggles in myself. And the more I can look to a higher power to, to give me that strength. And, and I, when I look at the scripture, whether anybody believes in all of it or not, 
You know, I was looking at what it says the fruits of the spirit is love, patience, kindness, holiness, like giving, sacrifice, service. This is how I'm trying to live. I'm going to fail every day. I'll be the first one to tell you. I'm never going to live perfect. That's not the goal for my spirituality. My goal is to strive to be those things. But I just know in my own power, when I do that on my own power, my selfishness comes in the way. My pride comes in the way. My ego comes in the way. I just look to a higher power to help remove those things. And every day, it's like a, it's a battle every day. It's, it's not like it's, I'm trying to become this perfect man. Everybody who knows me knows I'm far from perfect. I'm just striving to become better every day. But on my own self-power, I, I just know it doesn't work. I've tried it before for me. You know, so I, I used to have that same beliefs and, you know, man, I, you know, I got to be perfect to be a Christian, right? You know, how can you call yourself a Christian, but you just said a swear word, you know? And, and for me, Christianity, it's, it's a relationship. It's not that I'm striving to be this perfect person because nobody is. And if, if everybody was striving to be perfect, I don't believe we would ever need a God, you know, which is, which is sometimes what happens if somebody doesn't believe in a higher power is because to believe in a higher power, you have to put your pride aside. It's not just you. And that's a hard pill to swallow because we are prideful people. We do have pride. And it's like, it's tough to say that I depend on something else to give me strength. I want to be my strength. That may work for people. I'm not telling anybody what works for them. For me, I tried to be my own strength. At the age of 22, 23, you didn't have that strength to come out of prison and to kind of lead a, I say a law abiding life, but I mean, resist the things that had put you there in the first place. What did you end up going back to prison for? And how long was it the second time? The second time was the same things, different crimes. I was always stealing and finding ways to take from people to get money for drugs. So when I went to prison the second time, it was the same thing. It was stealing from people's. If your car was unlocked, I would steal it from and go to a pawn shop, you know, and, and I ended up getting, again, committed on crimes for stealing and, and theft. This time it was three years I got in prison. They gave me three years with two years probation, which is similar to like parole. They let you out. If you commit any crimes, if you fail a drug test, you have to get a job. They give you two years. If you fail, you go back to prison. What did you learn in prison, Joseph? I mean, you, you met this guy the first time round and, and his wisdom he shared with you. And I'm sure some of that stayed with you because you're talking about it today. Try to live a life when you got out, but didn't. What, what did you? So these were the two prison sentences you served. Did you serve any more time in prison or during these two times? So what did you learn this second time in prison or what did the prison teach you that made you come out and not go back to prison a third time? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I wish I could lie to you and tell you they did. It's the reason why I go back into prisons today, because uh, unfortunately, it's tough to say how and why they do what they do, because I don't want to put anything on, on anybody. But, you know, I go into prison and you're in there. There's there wasn't any programs for me. There wasn't any rehabilitation. It was my day to day was work, which means cutting grass and, and weed eating and, and cleaning up the highways you know, come back, go to the rec yard and exercise and go to sleep. You know, that was it. So what the belief is, is, okay, you're getting punished. And hopefully when you get home and you get out, this was so terrible for you that you don't want to come back. The problem, what happens to a lot of people is by the time they leave after two months, they forget. When you get out of prison, you forget about the pain of your past. I mean, we do it today, whether you're in prison or not. If you think about anybody who has fear, and is afraid to walk into a situation where they have fear, uncertainty, and doubt, ask them if they remember a time that they 
overcame the same fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Have you ever been in a situation where you were afraid, there was uncertainty, you had doubt, and did you overcome it? Most of the time they did. But when they're in the situation, we forget. And that's what happens. It happens. I see it happen all the time. They forget. So prison, unfortunately, it, it even today, like I love going back to prison, so I don't forget. I will never forget my prison number. I talk about it and I laugh with my wife when she asks me if my pillow is comfortable. I say, babe, I used to sleep on a little square pillow. And, and I, would, I would say things out loud on purpose because I don't want to forget. Because I believe the moment I forget, the moment I can slowly fall back. And I don't believe, you know, I, I tell people, I don't believe people go back. They wake up one day and they go back. I, I'll use this analogy of, you know, imagine that, you know, you're on a roof. There's a 10-story building. And if you're standing on the roof, living on, slipping on the edge, you're, you're close to death. Well, if you're on the ground, obviously you're safer. Well, when you get out of prison, you're on the ground, right? You're, you're, you feel safe. Okay, I'm never going back. I remember what it's like. And then there's a ladder that's climbing up this 10-story building. You don't just get to the 10th store, 10th floor. I'm sorry. You, you, you all of a sudden, you, you, you meet somebody, right? That maybe is not a great influence, but he's not crazy. So you, you kind of start hanging out with that guy first step. Then you maybe meet a girl. Then you start going to the club and then all of a sudden you start hanging out with a bunch of people and now all of a sudden you're smoking weed and now all of a sudden you're drinking and slowly but slowly you look back and you're like, how did I get here on the 10th step on the 10th floor? And I'm sitting on the roof about to fall off. The truth is, is it, it all started with one small decision that led to another led to another. And for me, that's what I learned about in prison. It's really what I learned. I, I, I learned, number one, it gave me a perspective of slowly but surely you have to methodically make these decisions in prison to survive. So it's like to get to plan, to get to even go to eat early or so, to do something, you have to methodically plan. Like, let me go stand by this. Let me go stand by that. It taught me how to live in there, but out here it's different. The problem in, also in prison is there's a lot of drugs in prison. So again, here I am left with the bondage of myself and now I'm in prison. So it's like, what are you going to do now? <laughs> You know, and, and I slowly went back. What changed for me was I got four months left of my prison sentence. I'm sitting in a 10 by 10 cell. There's an individual who's probably 70 years old who's, who is my bunkmate. You know, I end up getting in trouble for, for having cash on me in prison. And, and I'm still doing the same old saying this time in prison. And this guy looks at me and he says, you're going to be just like me. And I look at him, and for some reason, it was almost like I'm looking at what I could be like. This is a guy who's 70 years old, who's been to prison 11 different times. His whole life is prison. You know, the fact that he's still alive was amazing, but his whole life was in prison. And I think for the first time, I realized this could be me. I think this is the first time I honestly was afraid. I was, I was scared at that moment, you know, that if I don't change, I'm going to be just like this guy. And the scary part for me, Going back to my spirituality is I've tried on my own will. You know, listen, I'm a very, I don't call myself smart, but if I want to work on something, I get it done. I'm a business owner today. So I, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father. When there's something to do, I get it done. Give me a task, give me a problem. I'm ready to solve it. This was a problem I couldn't solve. I couldn't understand why I kept going back to drugs. I couldn't understand why I'm sitting in this 10 by 10 cell, knowing that if I go back to drugs, I'm going to be like this guy. But if this guy would have offered me a drug, I would have said yes. That mind right there, the thing, the power of my mind, I could not understand that for, for anything. It, it baffled me, but the other thing it did was it scared me. So what I started to do at that moment was the first thing I did was I prayed. 
whether I, I didn't even know if I was going to be heard or understood or anything. I just didn't know what else to do. So I just prayed. I said, God, if you are real, I want you to remove this obsession that I have in my mind to still want this drug. I don't understand why. What started to happen, because I didn't understand why, I started to research. I started to read. I started to, to try to understand the mind because it was up here. It wasn't like my body was craving it anymore. Up here, mentally, I wanted it. And I've never read self-help books. And the reason why I mentioned the Stephen Covey book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that was the first book I read. And when I started to read that, I started to understand about how all effective people and successive people, they master this. They master their mind. If you're listening to this, I'm pointing to my head. It was all the how the mind works and the mindset. What was crazy is that I started to read this book and I started to read this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic, but I'm starting to read this book about the, the alcoholic mind and how it works and how baffling it was. And I was like, I related to it. And, and some people say, well, they call it a disease. Do you believe? I don't, I don't get into all that. All I know is I read the book. I, I related to it. I used a lot of the things that it taught me. And I said, this could work for me. And I started to apply those things. And as soon as I came home, that was the first thing I started to do. I got involved in a program of recovery because I just didn't know if it was going to work. But I saw people working and I said, if I can overcome this mindset thing of wanting to use drugs and alcohol, if I can stay away from drugs and alcohol, I believe I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. I believe I can change my story. And, you know, I think that was the one thing I, time I realized that I'm not a thief. I'm not a criminal. I'm not a liar. Like, I'm actually a good person. I know I am. It's just drugs and alcohol turn me into this thing that I don't want to be. So if I can overcome that, then I could focus on being who I am. And that was the journey. I, I, I came home right away and I got involved in a program recovery to try to uncover who I am. I uncovered my past and I started writing this new chapter for myself. And when you talk about your addiction, we're talking about opiates, right? We're talking about heroin. I mean, was that, you know, smoking it? Was it injecting it? I mean, how bad was your addiction if it was controlling your life so much? Yeah, so I was, oh, I'm still afraid of needles till today. If I wasn't, I would have probably injected, but I was always snoring them. So that's how I was taking them. And I mean, I, I look at it and I look at like people who were shooting up and me and I'm like, man, I don't, I don't feel like we were any different. <laughs> You know, our habits were very the same. You know, the only difference is they had to use it differently. And I had to I had to get different tools than they did, you know, but our lifestyle was very the same. I, and, I, and so when you came out of prison and you went on this kind of recovery uh, 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 path, what was the turning point then? So you, 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 you talked about overcoming the drugs. And once you could overcome the drugs and the alcohol, you could find the Joseph that you knew was underneath the drugs or could come out from behind that curtain of drug taking alcohol consumption what what did you find joseph about yourself that you were capable of doing and went on to do one of the biggest things that was a surprise to me that was that i can help people that i could provide value to people that was a surprise to me you know i i didn't really you know honestly i realized i was trying to like okay, become who I am, but I never thought it was going to bring me on this journey that I could provide value to people. Um, I could be valuable. I can use the things of my past for a purpose. That part I didn't, I didn't believe, but that's what I started to understand. What I started to understand was that, that, you know, when I came home from prison, I created a lot of damage, right? And, and before I worked the program recovery, like the first time when I came out, I believe the reason why I was still not accepting who I was and loved myself was because of the damage I created. 
I mean, I created a lot of damage. There was people who could not sleep in their homes at night because they were afraid because of what I've done. My family had to deal with so much pain and, and so much agony of everything that they went through that I caused. I was carrying this burden. And what I found when I got into recovery is I had to look at that burden and say, hey, go clean it up. The people that I hurt, go make amends. That's how I'll deal with it. And I never understood it. But today what I understood was, you know, I look back at all the things I've done and I, I've at least made an attempt to right those wrongs. I can't change my past. I can't change the people I've hurt. I can't change, you know, things I've done. But I could at least change how I view them. And how I view them was this is what I did. Is there anything I can do to make this better? You know, I went to restaurants that I stole from that I know I took a couple hundred dollars from the register and I took an envelope and I went there and I said, hey, I know I'm not allowed in the establishment, but this is what I did. I was in my addiction at the time. You guys did not deserve this. This had nothing to do with you guys. And this is the money that I took from you. Is there anything else I can do to make this better? Many of them said, no, we really don't need the money. And I said, no, I understand you don't. But part of my program is to give back what I took and I need to write what was wrong. You know, it's making a direct amends. If I know that I stole from you, I don't want to go to bed knowing I owe you $200, but I have $500 in my bank account. I won't sleep good at night. This is the new Joseph I'm starting to create. And what I learned the program recovery does is when you're doing that, it's not so much about getting the forgiveness. It's not so much about people looking at you different. I'm creating habits of how I act now. Now, if I wrong somebody, I go pay them back. If I, if I was disrespectful to somebody, I've created habits in my life that I say, oh man, I get this feeling inside. I know I did something wrong because I've created new habits. That's what the program taught me. And that's what I started to learn about myself, that I'm still going to make mistakes. I'm still going to have to make amends to people. You know, I still have, you know, this selfishness and self-centeredness inside of me that will do things and provide value to my wife so I can get what I want. I still have these defects of character that are in me. And every day it's a constant battle. It's why my spirituality is important to me because if I'm relying on my own self, I start to realize that I'm just a messed up human. As much as I want to bring value to people, it's my life mission. My life mission is to bring as much value to people as I want. So when you go back into prisons, what, what is the value you offer to prisons or prisoners or staff in prison? What is it that you try to do in those establishments? One of the biggest things is hope. The one thing that was that is not inside of the prison is hope. You know, there's so much negativity, all the guys that are in there and, and the way they're talking about how it is when you get out, the system's rigged against you. You know, when you get out, 85, this is, this is a fact, 85% of people in Florida that go to prison for the first time will come back. 92% of people in the state of Florida who've been to prison twice will come back. When you're in prison, you hear that stat, you all of a sudden think there's no hope. You know, 85%, I got an 85% chance of coming back. What I try to come in there and say, all that 85% means is there's another 15% that don't. You know, th there's hope. There's a, there's a possibility that you don't have to be a statistic. I don't want you thinking of just a statistic. I look at my life and this is what I'm telling them. I was a drug addict. I've been to prison twice. I have 38 different felonies on my record. Each time I went to prison, they charged me with a bunch of felonies. The system was, was, was maybe set up against me. Maybe it is. That's what you think. But there's a possibility that you can, you, it's not a system. It's really what you changing. If you come out of here and you believe you're coming back, you will come back. But I want to give you guys the hope to say that here's some things you could do. Here's some places that are hiring people. 
You know, they're telling you how hard it is to get a job as a convicted felon. That is true. It is harder, but there's still jobs out there. So I want to come in and almost play like devil's advocate against the things that people are telling them in there as a real life example and as somebody who's been to prison before, you know, and, and give them hope. And, they, and honestly, a lot of the guys tell me that's the biggest thing you do for us is to see somebody who came to prison multiple times, but has gotten out and has become a success and is, is happy and, and, and joyous and free and, and living a good life. That gives me hope. You know, because I keep hearing that, you know, 85% of people are going to come back and I just keep thinking I'm going to come back anyways. And that's the biggest thing that I'm just sharing with these guys, giving them tools, helping to change their mindset, helping them to learn how to deal with the resentments of their past, helping them to understand how to deal with anger, helping them understand that, you know, the people you surround yourself with is very important to helping you not be part of that 85%. And I'm teaching them about that ladder that I was telling you about. That, you know, before you know it, you're on the roof. Well, I want to show you guys what each step is. It's, it's your people. It's your mindset. It's the things you're listening to. Even the music that you listen to every day, the things you put up here, all of a sudden you wonder how I'm on the 10th floor looking down about to fall off and end up back in prison. But if I can show you what the first step is, when you see somebody come into your life that says, hey, buddy, let's go to the strip club and smoke some weed, you're aware. Oh, no, no, that might be, you know, I, it's so funny. I tell people all the time, I'm still scared of going back to prison. I'm still scared of going back to drugs. You know, if you're a friend of mine, you work out with me in the gym and I know you smoke weed, I'm almost like, not that I'm not around you, but if you want me to hop in your car and go grab something to eat, I'm going to take my own truck. <laughs> I'm just going to hop in my own car and I'm going to take my own truck. It's not that I'm not going to hang out with you, but I'm going to protect myself because I'm still playing like, hey, I, I, I feel I could go back. And that fear is what, what keeps me sober. That fear is what keeps me from even, even accepting hopping in that car and wondering if that guy's going to put some negativity in my mind to say, yeah, I'm going to go to this party later. And all these girls are there. I don't want that here. You know, I just got to protect. I got to protect my environment. So I'll get in my own car. I'm, I'm paying attention to what it, you might be that first step on the ladder. And I don't want to hop on there. And I, all of a sudden, I don't realize I'm on going to the top floor. What does second chance mean to you then, Joseph? Is it about giving other people the hope, which is part of that second chance? Is it about you taking this second chance, you, you know, you have a family, children, you, you have, I think you said you're an entrepreneur and you have your own business. Um, so is it about, as well as helping making prisoners aware that there is an alternative path when they come out, but there are big decisions to be made in their own lives? Or is it about both things for you? So my question, I suppose, is what does second chance mean to you? For me personally, I, I, as you're saying that, the only thing I could think of a second chance means to me is giving myself a second chance. You know, I think that's so important. I think it's giving yourself a second chance, giving yourself a second shot. Because if we're depending on the world and community and everybody else to give us a second chance, you know, th they might let us down. You know, like if I, if I got out of prison and thought about the world giving me a second chance, I would have been very angry when I wanted to rent a home and I checked yes on the felony and they wouldn't let me rent a house. I would have been mad at myself. I would have been mad at the world that I would have said the world is not giving Joseph a second chance. You know, why can't I go vote? Why can't I carry a weapon to protect my family? Why can't I, you know, rent a home? Now, all of a sudden, I become a victim if I want everybody else to give me a second chance. I believe in accountability and responsibility. It's up to me. If it is to be, it's up to Joseph. So if I want a second chance, second chance to me means give yourself a second chance. Change your story. You know, don't, you don't have to tell yourself who you are. Give yourself a second chance. If you're doing life in prison, 
I tell these guys in prison, give yourself a second chance. If you're here, give yourself a second chance. What can you do for people in here? You know, maybe the world's not giving you a second chance, but what choice do you have? Give up. You, you can give up on life or choose to say, I got a second chance. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I'm here. Maybe I could provide, provide some value here. Maybe I could change somebody's life here that's going home. And for people that are getting out, don't look for the world to give you a second chance. If you're getting out of rehab, if you're getting out of prison, this is your second chance. It's your second chance that you have to give yourself, though. And now you can, cre you can start creating this new story instead of allowing the world to give you that second chance. And I only say that because for me, I wanted the world to give me a second chance. I wanted the world to tell Joseph it was okay. And until I started to say, Joseph, it's up to you. You know, don't depend on the world. Don't depend on your family. Don't depend on the job. Don't depend on a girl. It, if it is to be, it's up to you. And that, to me, that's what second chance means. So what are you doing, Joseph, in terms of work and your life that makes things very different from you and your existence? So short answer right now is one of the biggest things, obviously, is I want to give back to people that are coming out of prison and people that are in recovery, like dealing with drug addictions, because those are the two things that I've overcome. One of the big goals that I have is to open a transition home for people who are coming out of prison or getting out of treatment centers. And, and in there, they'll have systems that are in place to help them get jobs, lists of places that are hiring. You know, in the community, I, I already have a lot of people now that are in construction that will hire felons. So pretty much giving them a pathway to say, when you guys get out, you know, here's the place you can go. And that's what I want to do. I want to give them hope and be involved in that as well. Well, good luck with that. And thank you so much for sharing your, your own personal story and the work that you're doing on Second Chance Podcast. Good luck, Joseph. And, and thanks for sharing your story. Absolutely. Thanks, Raphael, for giving me that platform. Thank you. Please share this episode with your friends, family and colleagues and follow the show for updates about new episodes by clicking on subscribe. Your support really matters. You can also be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments and feedback. If you'd like to sponsor or advertise your service or product on this podcast, please get in touch. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy Second Chance Podcast. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our social media creator is Sophie Warner. This episode was produced by Kim Collicut at Second Chance Podcast and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns